Welcome back to the final episode of this season's RAG podcast with me, Sean Anderson, the CEO and founder of Hoxo Media. This is the show where every single week I bring to you stories from some of the most successful and innovative recruitment owners on the planet. Um, today, I'm super excited to be joined by Jamie Woods. Jamie is the CEO and founder of JCW Group, a multi-brand recruitment organization and a venture capital private equity business, all combined into one, focusing on, on everything that it relates to talent. Um, with 140 people across offices in London, Frankfurt, Austin, New York, LA, and soon to be Boston, with work also going on in different regions such as Amsterdam and Switzerland. 14 years old, there's got to be so many stories in here. So Jamie and I were supposed to record, or we, we had it pretty much penciled in to record in March, April 2020. And we all know what happened then. So, Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you, mate. Good to speak to you again. Yeah, I remember. I actually remember chatting to you. I think the first time we spoke, we obviously didn't do the recording, but we spoke. It must have been like three, four days after lockdown. Yeah. So yeah. right when, yeah, it was panic stations. I remember. Well, we had it. We had it. We were messaging, and it was through um, your marketing guy, wasn't it, Dan? And, and yeah, that's when, right. When, when we was messaging you, you're like, "Yep." Yeah. And then I literally phoned you. It was a lot. Do you want to do it? And you were like, look, I'll be honest, <laughs> a bit preoccupied right now, but yeah. I'll definitely do it. So we eventually got it, got it booked in. Um, yeah. So yeah, here we are. Yeah, here we are. Jamie, look, I've, I've given a really, really, you know, high level overview there. Um, for the listeners, could you just tell us a bit more about who you are and, and that overarching, what is JCW Group? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Jamie Woods, CEO and founder of JCW Group. Um I think I'm probably best described the business. It's it's made up of two constituent parts. So on one side, we have what we call our uh, core recruitment business. So that's made up of three different brands, technology, financial services, uh, life sciences, permanent contracts, contingent and retained, um, spread across uh, five different offices, two in Europe, three in the US. Mm -hmm. And then the sort of second element of the business, which is a sort of slightly more grandiose side of things at least how it sounds from a sort of when we start talking about private equity and stuff but it is probably best described as a you know venture capital slash incubator slash accelerator type play where we yeah we um, we'll talk about it more later no doubt but we we incubate organizations always at least so far talent focused organizations mm -hmm. uh, and then look to sort of grow them within the umbrella um, and in that that side of the business we've currently got um three in the portfolio so we've got a uh, a management consulting and staff augmentation business out in the us we have an academy business um here in the uk uh, you know one of those recruit train deploy businesses uh and we have a uh a, a sort of a platform enabled recruitment company out in austin um you whack, whack those all together under the group we've got as you say about sort of 140 people Group revenues, something in the region region of fifty million um, sterling, with about twenty million net fee income underneath that, and yep. profits in the region of sort of net profit five to six million underneath wow. that. Um, and then I sit at the top as a CEO, um, kind of responsible for making sure everyone knows where they're going, and you know, making sure we get there, of course. Um, and I've kind of been doing that role to one extent or another for the last yeah fourteen odd years as you said, kind of lived through wow. two fairly brutal recessions, including like the one we're technically still in, um, made some good decisions. I think I made a lot more 
lot more bad decisions or a few bad <laughs> decisions at least um we yeah. all we all do. that's it really well look that that i mean look there's so much to, to talk about there's so much to talk about it's uh it's incredible, really. And and one thing you said to me before with the show was you are in the very room today you started the business. Yeah, yeah. So this was this is the first this is the first flat that I ever bought back when I was sort of in my second year of recruitment. And then yeah. um after I left my first company, Eames, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, mm -hmm. I set the business up in this in this very living room. Yeah. Wow. Sitting Did you right there? Did you have any grand plans back then? Did you did you see the business you have today, or what what did you see? Do you think at the very beginning as a, as a future? Yeah, yeah. I had nothing but I had nothing but grand plans. To be honest, it was always it was always going to be a great organization. I was always looking to sort of try and build something as as good and as big as I possibly could do. Um, and whilst I'm very content with where we are now. I think to be honest, if I kind of went back in time and have had a chat to my 24-year-old self sitting in like uh sitting at the table there, I'd probably be a little bit disappointed with how uh how far I've come. But it's you know, it's classic. Like when you're when you're like a you know, highly inexperienced but also very arrogant, sort of full of beans, 24-year-old recruitment consultant, um, you you just have no appreciation of how difficult it's going to be you know you see other people making mistakes you, you think that's never going to be you um and long story short like the journey has been pretty uh yeah there have been lots of ups and downs it's just it's just a lot harder than you appreciate it but yeah from day one the plan was always to wow. build something serious here scale out i think you'd be disappointed with 140 people 50 million revenue and five six million net profit i mean wow <laughs> that's some big um, yeah. expectation big expectation yeah yeah i mean that's probably that's that's probably more the mind uh the way my mindset works more than anything but it's yeah like i said like we, we've made mistakes along the way that have set us back and you know like if you didn't make those mistakes the business would have been you know yeah we're doing okay now but we we could have done even better if uh we'd have done things slightly different which is generally my mindset anyway which you know works well for me to make sure i'm continuously improving and developing um but uh, yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm content with where we are. I'm not saying yeah. I'm disappointed, but I think yeah, my 24 year old self. If I asked him right, where are you going to be when you're 38? It would have been some ridiculous answer about you know 2,000 free owners or something, wow. something crazy like that. Well, I got into recruitment at 24. I was just turning 25, and uh, yeah, even when I started Hock, so I don't think I had. I don't think I was as big a thinker as you, if I'm honest. I definitely, I think the thing about Hoxo which excited me was I could see the scale in it. I could see the amount, mm -hmm. the sheer volume of recruitment agencies that would probably, you know, that didn't know enough about marketing. I could feel, I could feel, shit, they're every, I, I mean, and it was only based on my own knowledge of the, like, you know, Eames was a big competitor of mine. And yeah. I, you know, I knew the London market well. I'd worked in Australia. I knew there was a lot of, I didn't know quite how big the recruitment industry was, but, um, I was excited by scale, but I don't think I ever put a number on it or anything at that point. It just didn't feel like I, I just didn't see that way. Um, so take us back, take us back to 20, you know, 23 year old Jamie or whatever that got into recruitment. What? Yeah. Um, so you were only in your second year when you set your business up. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Which looking back is just. It's nuts, isn't it? <laughs> bonk, it bonkers really. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. don't know why or, or how, but anyway, um, so I, uh like everyone does 
sort of stumbled across recruitment. Um, I think so. E- Eames, Eames was the company I ended up joining. I must have interviewed with pretty much every other recruitment company in London and been like firmly rejected from pretty much all of them. Uh, by that point, I actually remember I was thinking about this the other day. There was one, there was one rec to rec who I went to meet. I remember meeting him and he had a, he had a sort of fairly fancy office in Islington and yeah. he actually told me to not waste my time or anyone else's time trying to go into recruitment because it was never going to work out for me. Oh, um, yeah, I can't remember his name. I can't remember the company. I actually looked into like, my old uh, Hotmail account the other day uh, to think, oh, I wonder if I've got like an appointment there for him so I can, mm-hmm. don't know what, that information. I had, but... I had a very similar story in Australia because I, I, I've told this before. I went to a rhetoric and I was a teacher from bloody proper working class background. I didn't know anything about business. And he asked me, what do you want to do, white collar or blue collar? Mm. And I didn't know what the fuck it meant, right? I literally didn't know. So I was like, uh, and I knew blue chip companies were big. So I assumed blue collar was blue chip, right? So I was like, yeah, blue collar, <laughs> of I want to work with the best or something. And he's like, idiot. Um, <laughs> and and he, <laughs> so he, he literally went, he told me Randstad had taken no overseas candidates now. And that was the company I wanted to join purely because my mate had just got a job through yeah. Randstad which is ridiculous, but when you're that age, that's what you think. Yeah. So I, I then applied to Randstad Direct. He didn't even send me in, and I got a job. And then, honestly, in my first week, he didn't even put two and two together that I was the same person, and he tried to, like, headhunt me out. I was like, nice. I literally, I forwarded his own email back to him with my own <laughs> signature saying, Randstad are taking no overseas candidates from Sean Anderson at Randstad. And then, yeah, he never replied back, but <laughs> similar story. So... What do you think was the difference with Eames then? I mean, I know Eames. I've interviewed Matthew and I've worked with Eames before. I know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of the business. What what was it like? What, why did they take a punt on you? Why did they tell me? Oh, they must have just been really desperate, to be honest. No, um, <laughs> I think, uh, like, you know, once you've had enough interviews, you become perfect at interviewing, yeah, you know, it's at least for recruitment. And it's like when we get when we get candidates sent to us by Rec to Rex, you know, they're so well prepped, for example, by that point, they, they can't really put a foot wrong and you've got to try and, You've got to try and work out what they actually really mean, what they actually really believe in. So I, I think I just learned to to blag what I needed to blag, and I, I started off just very, very naive. Um, but yeah, so I Matt gave me my sort of so Matt Eames, the owner of Eames, gave me my my big shot, uh, and I went in. So started off resourcer, filling IT roles for the London insurance market, getting paid fifty pound a placement. Um, uh, and yeah, I absolutely loved it. Cause I was, by that point I was desperate to work. I was full of ambitions as far as what I wanted to do in life. Um, and I've kind of, from day one, I made, made a conscious effort to try and always be the hardest worker in the room yeah. and always try and be the most productive. So not just working long hours, but making sure I'm top of basically every leaderboard going, which when you're, when you're brand new, the only leaderboard you can really do well at is things like calls and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I loved it. I must have been, I must have been like the sixth or seventh person to join. So it was a, t- it was a tiny little office um, in Hammersmith. Oh wow, the Hammersmith very, office. Yeah, that is. Yeah, the- old school. Yeah, very excited about you know Matt's aspiration. Um, so anyway, I, I cracked on with that. Did really well. Got promoted after pretty much as quick as I could do. And they had a structure back then that once you've done your first ten deals, you get given your desk. I was destined for some. I can't remember, I think it was change into banking or change into a different type of insurance or something like that. But then around the same time I got promoted, um, Matt had a mate of his from back in his PSD days that was 
really making waves in the um, he had a risk management recruitment business that was doing really well um and that was basically the extent of our market research and matt basically said well that looks like it's pretty good market do you want to do that and i'm sitting there thinking yeah cool you know i'll be head of head of a division and um you know what what can go wrong so i obviously i bit his arm off and then fairly shortly i realized actually i've bitten off a lot here because we had no candidates and it was a highly candidate driven market we had no clients because the vast majority of our clients at the time were insurance companies which which wasn't a big market for for risk um i had i didn't really have a clue about anything i had six months resourcing experience under my belt i knew nothing about 360 um and it was um it was still a really small business at that point and i was sitting next to matt i learned a hell of a lot from matt who like to this day is probably the best recruiter that i've um, had the pleasure of working with and he he would coach me i'd learn a lot from just listening to him and seeing how he interacted with people but he was growing a business around him he was still billing like a million plus quid out of his clients he's a busy guy there's only so much he can give me so it ended up being a real real slog and so that first i was sort of slogging away for about six nine months without really anything happening i do i do remember thinking this is crap actually like this is not this is not what i had in mind for myself you know i'm I've been sold like the whole hey you know 30 to 40k year one recruitment and i was looking like actually it would probably be about 20k 21k mm-hmm. something like that i was i remember being tired all the time i had no social life because i was working so hard um and i was just waking up thinking i'm not really very good at what i do um which is you know it's quite it is difficult to keep going in that context and i, I effectively made the decision that right i need to leave and go and do something else completely not going to be a fighter pilot or something like that and um but i was just i was so proud i was like there's no way i'm doing that there's no way i'm leaving until i'm good at this so i'm going to get good at it and then i'm i'm gonzo straight away um and so i was just sort of hitting my head against a brick wall six nine months something like that and then um one day i was a bit it was it was almost like a religious conversion like one day i'm slogging away scraping the barrel for one or two deals a quarter and the next day things are just making sense for me and i'm doing sort of two or three deals a month like clockwork um, know you know that, that it, yeah it's weird isn't it and you have to work so hard when you're like now in my job where we've got all these trainees just keep the faith it will happen one day but you won't realize it until one day it just happens but anyway um so from that point the business, the business around me, the wider business of Eames was growing absolutely great guns. So it was growing, everyone was doing well, you know, really good culture. Um, I started growing a team. My route, my initial experience of management was a lot sort of easier and more straightforward than my initial experience of billing. So that kind of went really well, kind of from day one. And then before you know it, it's sort of late 2006. By that point, I've been with the business two, I think two years, two months. Um, uh, and I had I had seven people underneath me. Team is doing well. Personal billings are going well. I think I, the, the wider business was about thirty people, low thirties. Um, I'd worked my way up to being the most sort of senior person there, bar Matt. Um, and um, but yeah, made the decision to go for a variety of reasons and left in um, left in January two thousand and seven. Did you know at that point you were going to start your own business? Yeah yeah because the i mean the way that came about because i didn't so i think i could i can probably break my experience in eames consulting down to sort of two 
two sections. So you've got the the first section, which is the vast majority of time there, like probably my 18 months or something. Um, absolutely loved it. You know, culture spot on, everyone's successful, real nice sort of family feel to the business. Everything's going great guns. And I think if you'd have spoken to me then, I'd have said, I'm never leaving Eames. You know, my long-term plan is to grow within the business and one day, hopefully, you know, um, I can do the job that Matt's doing for him. Um, and then the second stage of the business, which is really just like the back end of the time I was there, about six months or so, um, by that time, we're getting to like late 20s, early 30s in terms of headcount, which is kind of well into that zone where things really start to get challenging. You know, a lot of lot of recruitment companies, at least a lot of them struggle to get yeah to get through that. Um, and it, it was the same for us at Eames. And we started, I think what, what first got me thinking about, actually, maybe I'm not going to be here for the rest of my life, is we just started to, we made a couple of, a couple of bad decisions. And like I... I had influence on decisions as part of the management team, but I didn't have control of them. Um, and I can't even, I think one of the decisions was around the commission scheme. And I can't even remember what the other decisions were. It's just, it's, you know, it's all quite sort of trivial stuff um, yeah. from the, my current perspective, but it's, it, you know, there were decisions that uh, I didn't think were necessarily going to be the right decisions. They didn't necessarily then play out well to the business. It made it slightly harder for me to, um, manage my team, um, keep them retained, keep them motivated. And I think it all it all worked out fine. Like the decisions got unwound. Yeah. But I think it was the first taste of me starting to realize that actually I'm not completely in control of my own destiny. Yeah. And that actually all these ambitions and things that I want to achieve in my life, um, maybe I need to be master of my own destiny a bit more you know and the context being i'm 23 i think i've got oh, yeah, that's answers, you know did you have anyone outside of work like a father parent friend mentor anyone that was entrepreneurial successful that you think you picked some of this kind of drive off no uh, no. no i mean wow. my parents my parents you know i've had a had a great childhood parents always very supportive i grew up in devon they always say right you've got to go to london that's where you're going to make your money um but no no specific like role model of yeah, yeah. what i'm gonna emulate well that's what i mean do. to have that at 23 without that is incredible i, I don't think i had that at 23 well, i definitely didn't um but i do i do have i do have a similar experience of in in my old agency feeling like it was i don't know there's, there's a point where you the track the train tracks for you and them are in the right direction same direction. everything's moving in yeah. one, and for some reason, and it doesn't always have to be a reason that's that's like concrete. They just start to derail a bit, and you start to go. The business is going one way, and you're going another way in your mind. Yeah, it's hard to bring that back, and you know you might bring it back, but sounds quite similar to me. So you you quit. JCW is your initials, I imagine. They are, yeah. That's Sim as simple as that. Did you take any time over the name? As it was, yeah. Not really, to be honest, mate. Yeah. No, so no. take us back to the the room then what what did you decide to focus on at the beginning how did you how did you crack on because you'd you'd done a few things you'd managed some people you know you'd worked in risk or did you just literally lift and shift what you were doing before or pretty much i think i had the so there like one one of the it, it wasn't just a case of right there was a couple of bad decisions at eam or decisions at eams i didn't agree with and then i left um and ironically by the way I've, I've, I ended up making pretty much the same mistakes with JCW along the years anyway, which you know, kind of just, just business is just hard. Um, and then 
there there are other factors as well like i think so i personally find generally and definitely found during my time at eames that when things are going well it's great fun but you don't necessarily learn that much because sometimes it's not particularly clear as to why things are going well whereas when things are going less well like for example my last six months at eames when the wider business started to really get into those choppy waters of you know 20 30 fianas and beyond um it's almost as if it, when things are struggling it kind of re reveals the machinery underneath everything and you can work out okay well what's going wrong here it's that bit here let's fix that bit here but not only let's fix it now but let's make sure we prioritize that bit going forward and you, you just learn more in my experience when it comes to a at least when it comes to recruitment business for when things go wrong yeah. than when things go well and i think off the back of that short period of time at eames i had very a very specific vision of how i was going to build um a recruitment company that was going to scale and it was going to scale in like a fairly sort of hiccup free fashion <laughs> which obviously didn't work out like that you know the, the, yeah. the core principles i put in place are still they're still most of them are still pretty robust and i do i've still got them i still dust them off occasionally but i had a really specific view um so, so i knew exactly remember, what i was gonna can you remember what that was um it's, it's fairly it's fairly basic stuff it was um building a business around um that actually put people first and foremost and i saw my job as sort of founder and M director md whatever is okay my first and foremost job is make sure that people here are happy fulfilled and basically don't want to go anywhere and there's all sorts of different angles as to how you do that obviously probably the most important one is making sure they're successful in the first place because you know an unsu you know a successful recruiter is typically a happy one even if yeah. everything else isn't particularly great um and but prioritize them in the knowledge that if you prioritize effectively the culture and had a culture which was um you know people focus retention focus first and foremost then they would look after everything else they would look after the clients the candidates the offering the operations that would all go fine your just job as founder first of all is to make sure you've got a great environment where people want to be there and don't want to go anywhere um which again is not it's not exactly rocket science but at the time it felt right I, i'm kind of behind this prioritizing it to that level um i, I guess another element was to try i wanted to try and build a business that if i'd have hired myself then i would have never have left like i left Eames. So i thought right if you're gonna if you really want to scale up you've got to try and build like a a, a business that's going to be able to retain those entrepreneurial type characters who are going to sort of really accelerate your 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 business forward and i think it, which is quite tricky to do um and it's again it's, it's semi-commonplace these days to talk about how you go about um potentially enabling your your staff to become wealthy over time back then it was actually a lot rarer i think you had you had s3 had their multi-brand model um and you know they'd made a lot of people into multi-millionaires you know they're quite famous for doing that but it wasn't it wasn't so common otherwise and i thought right i need to build a business here that when someone when someone like me comes along and after a few years says uh, you know yeah six figures is cool how do i get to seven figures you need to have an answer for them yeah. like you know and the answer can be actually it's going to be really difficult but this is how you do it um and to effectively create a proposition where those people find it they're given a better deal to stay with the group and grow within it 
than if they'd gone off to one side and set up their own business. That is literally, I'd see that so often, you know, mm. so often. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's a massive one that, that like, you know, the bigger you get in your business, especially when you go from top, top biller to mm. management and leadership, often your salary can be le- like the, the take home goes down, right? I mean, I, I I went from two hundred to one hundred, I think, in terms of take home, and after after being promoted, and I just couldn't get my fucking head around it. I was like, you know, how do I get to five hundred grand a year, not go down? And yeah. and it was it was a really difficult conversation. And I, I looking back now, I understand it that they were like, you know, they're trying to build a business around me, they're trying to scale me, and they're trying to. But if they'd have said, well, you get to five hundred grand by doing this, I'd have been probably quite yeah. excited. But instead, it was this is a better job, and it just it just didn't work for me, you know. Um, but I, I completely empathize with that. So you've got this grand plan. You've got ideas. How did it actually go? Let's go back to the start, you know, in terms of yeah. what was the first year like working on your own? And, and- Yeah, uh, not good. <laughs> not good to us. So I, I was working, in my, um, working here in my living room um, for the first nine months or so. You know, these days working from home is nothing novel. Everyone's doing it um, yeah. post-COVID. Back then it was not no one it just wasn't really even a concept um and to be honest i I kind of struggled with it because i'd I'd made this i built this reputation for myself at least in my own head of being this super diligent hard worker you know highly productive individual um and then i was getting to the point where i was was getting to the end of the days working here and you know sometimes i couldn't look myself in the mirror as far as i just haven't really i put in an okay shift by normal standards but i've really not pulled out all the stops and I think it I think it was it was partly the distractions of being at home. I think more it was the challenge of actually having no one to be accountable to other than yourself. Um, you know, you can do nothing for weeks on end and no one's there to tell you not to do that. Um, and yeah, it, it was a real struggle. This was like this was 2007. This was about the time that Facebook was just coming along. Facebook used to be cool back then. And I remember just losing hours to just scrolling nonsense, just completely out of waste of time. Um, but I, so I had these big, I had these big plans, right? You know, I'm going to set the business up, and then within within three months, I'm going to do be doing 40k a month. And I think I ended up doing something like 40k in the first nine months. It was just exceptionally more challenging than I expected it to be. So, but I did slowly start building momentum. I sorted out the productivity issue by basically moving into a. I moved into an office. I found a shared office in Knightsbridge, opposite Harrods. There was a small business that was only three of them, but for some reason they had a 20-person office and they were renting out the desks. And I went in there and then after a few weeks, there was like 18 other people there all doing, you know, weird and wonderful jobs. There was like a trader there, a marketer, and generally sort of solo businesses. Um, And that all all of a sudden I had that accountability because I, I, I just felt like I couldn't sit there in front of these guys without basically showing them how how productive, how productive I am and how hard I work. Um, I probably wasn't particularly popular because I was the only person in that entire business that did a phone-based job. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. That, that was quite, that ended up being quite transformational. I found it really inspirational because I was opposite Harrods and I'd, on my lunchtime, I'd walk in Harrods, see all these massively expensive things, see all the fancy cars outside and be like, okay, this is, this, you know, this is one of the reasons why you're doing this. And um, that was where, again, it, it kind of just clicked. Um, and we get to the point where we're doing two, three deals a month and started hiring. So I was only actually in that Knightsbridge office for a couple of months. 
left there, set up, set up shop in Clerkenwell, um, uh, hired, hired someone. Um, and you know, my, I got really lucky with my first, if I look at something like the first 10 hires that I made, I think something like five or six of them have ended up going on to doing big roles in the business. Mm -hmm. They're not all still here. Like good few of them are, but they, I, I got really lucky as far as the capability and, uh, to extend loyalty of those people and it's the same with the first person I hired he went on to do big things in the business and he made a he made an immediate impact um and 2008 we were we were rocking and rolling making lots of money how big were bubbling. you then uh we only only four people so still yeah. still pretty small but um it was it was very exciting good fun great fun at that great fun at that point though it's small yeah, yeah. so easy looking back but yeah really good fun and it was um what was bubbling away in the background? Like I'd managed to, like when I set up in April, I'd managed to sort of time it perfectly with the first first mention of the phrase credit crunch starting to knock around. Yeah. So bubbling away in the background, you actually have got a declining market and you've got a lot of um, a lot of these big uh, recruitment companies, you know, issuing profit warnings and blah, blah, blah. But we were, we were absolutely crushing it. And I remember like, I was cringing, cringy thinking back about it. But I remember we had this conversation in the office, the four of us, about how we were we were too good for the credit crunch and you know that kind of that kind of nonsense. Anyway, fast forward to I think it, I can't always forget if it's September, October two thousand and eight. I remember being on the bus and got text from my dad saying Lehman Brothers has just declared bankruptcy. Again, I'm. 24, 25 at that point. I don't really know what that means. I know all about Lehman Brothers because I know my market well. I know what bankruptcy is, but it doesn't connect with me how big a deal it is when a bank goes bust of that, that size or even any size. But I go into the office. I didn't do much work that day. I spent, I spent it glued to the news. And I remember, I distinctly remember getting the train home to my girlfriend in Essex that night in a state of panic, basically, because... Up until that point, we were, I think 90% of our revenue was just from two businesses. Like we're a very account-driven organization. I wasn't doing, I wasn't doing any external sales. All the sales I was doing was to get in those accounts bigger and bigger. And these are these are big, large firms that are clearly not going to be hiring as we kind of fall Come off on, the cliff. Yeah. And in, in those early days, yeah, people are talking about it's the end of capitalism and all this other nonsense. So it was it was it was quite scary. And I remember writing out a business plan on that train as in, right, how I'm going to transform us overnight into a, um, not just sort of three people delivering onto my roles, but four people who are a sort of an effective sales force. Um, and yeah, that didn't really, work, didn't really work out. So, um, everyone was like BAU and then two weeks later, all hiring, all hiring, shut up shop. Mm. And this is another, I think there's various sort of pivotal points in the business where you think if it had gone a different way, then the business could have ended up looking very different. But I think one, when Lehman went bust, I had, I think we had something like almost 200 grand's worth of starters with one client that hadn't started yet. That was starting in sort of three or four weeks later. And you're just waiting for the call. And I know plenty of other companies did this. Um, you're waiting for the call where they say, hey, yeah, those people, we're not going to honor those starts. You need to, they need to go and find another job or, you know, beg their old company to take them back. You know, cool eventually did come and it's like, yeah, we are going to honor those starts and, you know, fair, fair play to them. But that, that then meant 
I didn't realize this at the time, but that that meant once that came through, we were probably cash wise, we were probably the strongest recruitment company in the city. Because like looking back now that I actually understand how it all works, yeah. I know that we had something like two years of cash without having to make a single bit of yeah. cost cutting. I could still pay my mortgage and all the rest of it. But so that was that was a big deal. But basically the market shut down and it shut down completely for nine months. And it was just it was I remember there's one we pulled a roll. There was one role in the market at one point. It was a risk analyst role, 35K for uh, an insurance company in Guildford. We managed to get it. There's 12 other agencies on the call. We don't fill it. Um, yeah, it was really grim. And we had one. So one person left. Uh, he left to be a, a submariner. Um, the other two stuck it out. Now, I don't know why. You know, you must have just had faith in what we were doing. I, I kept billing for most of this period so I could I could keep our head above water from a PL perspective, yeah. which probably was helpful in giving people a bit of hope that actually this is going to go somewhere. Um, and then come July time, one of those clients called us up and said, hey, great news. Uh, we've done all the redundancies we need to do. We now basically need to hire, hire loads of pe new people. Um, we've got 60 odd roles and we just want to use you and one other firm for it on a sort of semi-exclusive basis. Are you interested? Yeah. So we took that um, and from that point onwards, it was basically a rocket ship from, uh, you know, 2009 ended up being a really good year, even though it was basically really only half a year where the market was doing anything. Uh, and then we grew pretty much consistently from that point onwards until pretty much until 2012, when we hit our own 30 plus Fiona sort of rocky patch. I'm interrupting today's episode to introduce our sponsor, District 4. District 4 is a brand new community of expert recruiters founded recently by James Johnson, the former CEO of Nickel Curtain Group. He sold the business last year and has set up a business that effectively allows expert top billing recruiters to own their own destiny. So post-COVID-19, there's a hell of a lot of top performers out there that are thinking, what does life look like after this? Do I really want to go back to the office? Do I really want to be surrounded by juniors? Do I want to build teams? What do I want? Well, um, I've been there. I was the top builder in 2015, 2016, and going into management was a decision I made, and it wasn't lightly. Um, having had an opportunity that would have been different. I might have gone a different way. Um, and James is offering that opportunity, right? He's saying, if you want to earn more money, have less of the, the bureaucracy, if you like, of an agency, but also be surrounded by other top billers, because I think that's a crazy thing. So many top performers in recruitment businesses are on their own. They don't sit in a, in a boardroom full of top billers. They're usually on their own, either with the owners or with people that are significantly uh, performing lower than them. It's quite a lonely place. So District 4 is effectively a community where you can start your own mini recruitment business within the community, within the brand, and be surrounded by other people that are all billing 200 grand and plus. You get complete ownership of your destiny. You can uh, do exactly what you want when you want. You can bill what you want. Um, and the back office, everything uh, that you don't want to do, um, invoicing, contracts, compliance, etc., is taken care of. So you can be an absolute niche expert recruiter. So James and the team are growing rapidly. They are looking for expert independent recruiters to get in touch. If you're billing at least 200,000 in, in an average year, 
you're an, you're a niche recruiter. We're not looking for generalist recruiters here. If you're a niche recruiter and you're thinking, look, one option is to go back to the office. I'm not excited. The other option is to start my own business in my underpants. Not excited. This might be the option for you. So if you're interested, either click the link associated to this episode or go to www.district4.io forward slash hoxo. That's www.district4.io forward slash hoxo. On there, you'll see more information about their membership, how to get involved and register your interest. Within days, James will be on the phone. You'll have a conversation about the opportunity and you might be one step closer to being in control of your destiny. Don't wait now. Make that contact and change your life post-COVID for the better. So take us to that point then. So you get to 30 and that is the point, as you say, a lot of people struggle with. And up until that point, you probably felt, you know, there's 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 an air of simplicity to the business. It gets to 30 people. What What is that major thing that, that stops people breaking through? Because it's literally, you know, so many don't get through that. Yeah. So I think if I look at, if I look at our example, at least, when you're like, when you're 15 people, everyone knows me. Everyone has a lot of contact with me. I can put in enough business for everyone to be really well fed. Um, everyone buys into the vision because they're spending time with me. And the vision at that point is me really easy at that point fast forward to 30 odd people you've got like a few people by that scale who yeah they know me but they don't know me that well you know they don't know me enough to really buy into me they don't really i'm not training them someone else is training them they need to buy into whoever their sort of team leader is that team leader is probably a really really inexperienced person themselves they're probably an inex you know a manager with no experience and they might not really know how to do that job and how to build um yeah how to build that buy-in and credibility and then me myself because i'm still so inexperienced at this point i don't really know how to get the managers to do it i know how i do it but i just kind of do it because i just do i don't i can't really break it down i haven't got the uh, i didn't have the wherewithal the knowledge to really teach managers how to be good managers in themselves and then make sure that it happened and then so it starts to when you get to 30 it starts a bit to sort of fray around the edges and um, you start to you start to come up against sort of turnover issues when you've never had them before, you know, performance issues when you never had them before. And it's generally because, at least in my experience, because you've got a management team there that they don't have the support, the training, the development, the handholding that they need in order to do a good job with the people underneath them. So it makes sense. Yeah, all feeds into me. It's all my fault, but it, you know, to be honest, I just didn't, just don't really know. Didn't know what. I how didn't know how did you solve that? And how do you? And and I guess think about and thinking about that from an advice perspective, because literally, I can already see that in in our business. You know, there's challenges. We had a we had a half year party on Friday. It was a wicked, but it's the first time I've met in person yeah. half the team because of the pandemic. And you know, some of them I'd not even spoken to one on one because my business partner leads a lot of that. So. We, I can empathize hugely. We're at 30 people now as a business. So I can totally, mm. we're in that point, right? It's not recruitment, mm. but it isn't all that different in terms of the way it, the way it's run. Um, how did you solve it? And how how should people, how do people solve that and get um, beyond? So I, I solved it because we had another thing going on in that we, um, we had a, uh, you know, there was a guy that I'd hired in 2009, the, the first hire that we made post-recession, as it were, who was, absolute you know superstar this kind of vertiginous career and he'd been 
He's still with us now. He's our sort of chief commercial officer. I'd earmarked him to go and set up New York, which is a total, total other story because that was quite a big call to make at the time. And uh, but I wanted to go out there and be. I wanted to help him. I didn't want just to send him out and be like, right, give me a call every week. Let me know how you're getting on. I wanted to be there on the ground with him for a big, big chunk of those first few years. Um, and you know, the business back in London was nowhere near mature enough for me to just let them let them get on with it. So I went and hired someone from uh, Hayes who was basically his specialist. His specialist thing was building management teams, managing management teams, yeah, building in that structure and scalability. Um, uh, and you know, that, that's what he does full time now. He's a management coach to do that. Um, and so I hired him to basically look after UK while I was going away, but, but, but more than look after the UK, it was actually, you need to bring in some rigor structure process. Cause I don't know what I'm doing here at this point. Um, you know, I remember having a team, you'd have team meetings on a Monday, you'd set targets for the week. You come back the next Monday and like clockwork, you know, I'd know that, you know, at the guy who was going to go and set up New York, he'd have hit his targets. The other two would have forgotten what their targets were. And again, it's not, it's not their fault. Um, in fact, they you know, they went on to do really great things in the business. It's just, I didn't have the tools to basically put in the structures to make that kind of impossible to happen. Um, let alone give them the training. Um, so, so we did that. And so, um, yeah, he came, bought a lot of structure, rigor process, um, with him. I think, I think what it really boils down to is you have to appreciate that managing, managing managers is much harder than managing recruiters and, and managing recruiters is hard as it stands. And I think going into that, I was completely naive to that fact because I thought, right, managing recruiters is really tough. Managing managers should be fairly easy because, you know, we're all managers in it together. Um, yeah. and, it just doesn't work like that because people come to the table and they've got so many different, so many different strengths, so many different weaknesses. Um, but long story short, we put in place a management training program, which is, you know, now thoroughly enhanced all these years later, but it's still fundamentally there. Um, they get trained as well and as thoroughly as new people when we first join. We have a management framework in place to make sure that people are always doing certain aspects of the job. So these days, for example, how that works is it it hypoth you know, hypothetically makes it impossible for a trainee to join this business wherever they are in the world and not be managed to a particularly high standard because we've got the processes in place to make sure that's happening and to track those activities. Mm. Um, and I think a big part of it as well is you've got to teach people, you've got to specifically teach people culture because as the business gets past 30, you can have the best organizational culture in the world. If that individual team culture is either toxic or just neutral, there's nothing there, then that's probably not going to be enough to keep people, you know, managers need to be working on their own team culture so that they're actually retaining people because they're a great team to be in, not just because, oh yeah, the JCW right. London office is so much fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have to, you have to, you have to teach people that they have to pull together a plan as far as how they're doing it. Um, and once we got to, once we got to grips with those kind of concepts, it started working. It started working really well. I think the challenge, the challenge we had though, so we kind of fixed that problem before we know. We then had a good management team, which actually in itself is 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 a struggle. I think if I think about all the conversations I have with like my peers at doing similar roles elsewhere in the industry, the the thing that they most frequently complain about is their sort of middle management levels. 
Um, so we, we, we did and still do a really good job on that. I think it's really important as a business. But we, for a number of years, we just lost sight of um, those sort of key principles I referred to of like building a culture around people, looking after people first and foremost, and then letting them do the rest. We, lo we just lost sight of that. And we got to the point where almost for a period of time, it was almost just a bit nasty for a while. You know, there's so many different ways in which people could um, trip up and get a warning. And we had like a, a zero policy on lateness, which actually, you know, ended up sacking a few people. And it was just, it ended up being like not a great place to be. And staff retention. Now we did that because I was under the impression that that's what we kind of had to do in order to really scale up. Like we have to bring in these, you know, there have to be rules and rules need to be followed and, and these rules make sense. And I'm thinking, well, if I was if I was living under these roles, rules, I'd love it because, you know, you just follow the rules and just do what you need to do. But the, the reality is, and I think maybe 10 years prior, it worked really well. But the reality is at that particular time, you know, graduates and we were mainly hiring graduates didn't like that at all. You know, they didn't want that type of environment. They wanted freedom, flexibility. Um, they wanted to be um, they never wanted to be shouted at or anything like that. And we were just we were just kind of out of date. And I think the big mistake I made is I just I stuck my head in the sand on that for too long. And when someone was leaving, I'll be thinking, well, we just need to go out and hire some tougher people. You know, these people just don't like the change. Um, anyway, eventually I kind of woke up, you know, the scales fell away from my eyes and uh, we, we sorted that out. We brought the culture back. You know, we set a clear target to, right, we need to fix this. This isn't working. We need to go back to basics as in what made the company great initially and um, really sort the culture out. I think we had, we set a target of getting onto the Sunday Times 100. Like we ended up sort of placing fourth place a year later. So that kind of worked really well. And before you know it, we had a culture that was really good again. Um, we then had another issue, which is um, the, we just weren't being very productive. So we had like a really good culture, like retention was sky high. We'd gone from having really bad retention to like best in the industry retention. But then we weren't making, we weren't making that much money compared to what we expected to. And I think we had, there it was, there was a particular sort of pivotal moment where it was December, just before Christmas, I think either 2017, 2018. And uh, I got a call from sort of the finance department, you know, one of those calls that you never want to get when you're running a business around like, you know, we're okay now, but if we keep performing at this rate for too many more months longer, we're going to potentially be in a spot of bother. What was the um, challenge? What was the problem? We just weren't making enough money. Hmm. We weren't, weren't making enough money, basically. You know, we were, we were, we were we were kind of scraping a profit but we weren't making enough profit to give us a consistently good uh cash performance month so on you're, month. Re you're reinvesting were you reinvesting almost too heavily without the team performing high there is an extent yeah to to an extent but it was mainly a performance issue it was mainly performance issue we had lopsided performance we didn't have consistent month on month performance uh and we were netting out to not really making as much money as we needed for a period of time to to hold it together um so that ended up being uh yeah I, I i deal i deal pretty well with stress i think it's probably my only superpower when it mm. comes to leadership you know i i thrive on stressful situations almost there's only been two times in my career where that's kind of not been the case and i've thought actually 
this isn't this is really bad um and that that was one of them and i ended up spending the whole christmas buried in spreadsheets and it, I, I was just sitting there thinking how has this happened you know four or five years ago we were winning awards like it's going out of fashion you know fast growth awards uh you had a great culture massive growth year on year um absolutely crushing it you know a clear path to being you know 100 odd people and then sort of f four years later or so we've just we're just sort of scraping by like we're still profitable but not anything towards the level that we should be we're still growing but it's pretty anemic um and the you know the the trajectory just just wasn't anything in line with like all the different goals that I'd set myself and uh, what I'd expected, um, and it just kind of yeah it just sort of woke me up a bit. Anyway, I came back in January. I made some changes at sort of senior management level. I'd effectively put myself back into that more hands-on chief exec role because I'd, I'd I'd sort of slightly veered away from that in the previous years. Um, drastically raised expectations across the business you know we did it in london the back then it was just london and new york so we did it in london immediately we did it three months later in in new york and then you know the way i think about it at that point the business was kind of reborn and we we're what in a situation where so it's either it's either 2017 or 2018 i think and, i think maybe how many people did you have at that point so 2018 we were half the size that we are now Wow. something like that so we might, i think it was about 50 50 60 people yeah something wow. like that um and yeah since then it's been how, great i think it's kind how of best of both raise expectations in the business like what that sounds great but what do you actually mean what do you do to do something like that um so so for us it was like you know we'd worked so hard to get the culture back on track that the culture ended up getting almost too good where you know well done you've turned up for work on time you know here's a bottle of cristal to enjoy at lunch like yeah. you know the the stat you know high standards didn't really feature at all it was just a great place to be but you didn't mm. really have to work very hard you didn't really get any nasty conversations when you, you know you didn't get a, a kick up the backside when you needed it um and that doesn't that doesn't equate to a high performing organization it, it equates to really really good performance in the sunday times hot 100 but it doesn't equate to good um you know success and growth um and, and but to a certain extent the vast majority of the workforce understood that they were you know when when i kind of said to them as in like guys guys a great place to be we kind of need to make more money than this because that's why we're all here um the response from the entire business was actually sort of very mature naturally mm -hmm. there were a couple of people who didn't really appreciate it and left uh, but for the most people um everyone's fine and you know what it's really basic stuff it's just having higher expectations as far as what people did in their particular day it's like you know people don't like talking about it but it's good old-fashioned activity expectations like what are you going to yeah. get done in your day and yeah you because know, when i spent that christmas time buried in spreadsheets what was eye popping was just this just how low the activity levels were you know in the context of my having been a successful recruiter in the past you're like how are we doing how are we doing so little um yeah. and so it was it was actually fairly straightforward and it was well received it was kind of pushing at an open door um and the response was immediate almost immediate you know three months later the deal started kicking in and since then it's been um you know we've had 50 percent near so some mid 40s um sort of compound growth rate um 
globally in terms of revenue and we've obviously been increasing headcount and profit and all the rest of it so when we talk about the business i often kind of think that that 2017 2018 date is actually when we were sort of reborn you know i'm really proud of everything we've done before learned a hell of a lot of lessons before that but 2017 onwards is where we've kind of got the best of we've got the best of both worlds we've got the the warmth of culture the strength of culture that we had during that first sort of startup phase but we've yeah. got the rigor the professionalization that we got in that that second phase where we went through that and that's shown that in rocky period that's shown in performance doesn't it at the end of the day yeah 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 it's not yeah. it doesn't lie right it, you, your performance doesn't lie what 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 about the pandemic so obviously when we connected where was your business in in february march 2020 and what happened to you personally in that in that period um yeah business was doing well you know 20 2020 uh, sorry 2019 was the first year that we did two million plus on net profit which is uh you know that was a, a big number for me and i think it's a big number for a lot of people when they're starting up it represents a degree of scalability that's very difficult to get to um we're making lots of money we were quite lopsided i think we had a we were making um new york no new york business was outperforming the other three offices although two of the other three offices were still sort of very small at, at, that, at that point in time so it was a bit lopsided but the other businesses were doing well especially the sort of quite startup ones and business generally was was growing it was it was good um pandemic when the pandemic rolled in i think obviously we didn't see the pandemic coming what we did see coming was something you know like, you know people have been talking for years that there's going to be a downturn it's yeah. going to be big because we haven't had one for 10 12 years however long it was um i still sort of very got very fresh memories of the financial crisis and, and what that was like to go through um so we'd been progressively building the balance sheet for the previous few years leaving kind of as much everything in you know I, I don't need i haven't got a lavish lifestyle so i i take out very little but mm. also we were making sure that we were you know investing wisely growing but not necessarily overdoing it um and then the, so when so when the crisis actually hit the uh, you know i spent the first couple of days just locked in locked in uh, teams calls with um the financial director but i went into that conversation pretty confident you know i knew that we were strong financially that we have been you know really profitable up until that point um and yeah i wasn't disappointed you know once we'd worked out that yeah a couple of our big clients are still gonna still gonna pay their bills you know the the existential crisis kind of ended up passing fairly quickly but you know whenever you're in that situation you could have the best balance sheet in the world it's it's amazing how quickly you can burn through that balance sheet especially once you've got you know a, a half decent size business with lots of very expensive offices and very expensive salaries on it so yeah i personally did the line by line cost review um which was a really eye-opening experience because you it makes you realize how much money you're wasting on stuff that you yeah exactly and that's COVID aside so you think right yeah note to note to self sort out cost control when we get to the other side of it um event, eventually you come to the sort of the line that you don't want to come to which is the um which is wages um and so we, we did a few things so um uh i mean i stopped getting paid uh for something like nine months or something the senior uh leadership and operations team they took fairly healthy 
pay cuts, um, which the business ended up repaying to them all. But you know, they just they took it like absolute troopers. There was absolutely no problem there. Um, uh, but we did have to make some cuts to the business in terms of headcount. I think you know some businesses, some offices, sorry, we shrunk more than others. But I think in in total net terms, we shrunk by about um, I think fifteen percent or something right. like that. Um, but again, that's that's on us really because I just think one of the things that we've we left too late, we've sorted it now, but we should have sorted it a long time ago, is our performance management, and this I think this is a big piece of advice I'd have for anyone who wants to scale up a business, but our performance management framework, how we how we set targets, how we track performance against those targets, rewarding the overperformance, but also managing the underperformance. It just it was it was just way too loose for too long. Mm. And like we were really good at rewarding overperformance. Like we've always had like a very structured you know, career path, you know, we, we pay lots of money, we, we don't have a ceiling, like I've mentioned before, um, and it's fundamentally been part of the business since day one. So that's not a problem. Managing underperformance, though, is much, much harder. And that managing underperformance in the old days, pre COVID was just very loose. Like, you know, if someone had a good attitude, if they were a good egg, then you, they would, we would, we'd be fine with sort of mm. persistent underperformance you know even if they were ultimately unhappy with that and not particularly sort of content we just kind of let it drag on um and as a result going into uh 2020 we 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 just had a, we had a bigger team than we should have done because you know we had people in the business that um just weren't really uh you know doing what they need to be and weren't really content about it so like it, it was one of those things where it's it's really difficult decisions to make on headcount but at the same time, not difficult. You know, it's difficult in that these are people who, who cared about the business, had worked hard, were nice people that I, you know, liked personally and had, you know, networks internally. That's made it hard, but it was less hard in that um, they were all people that you know would have been happier doing something else. You know, whether mm -hmm. they realized it at the time, you think, you know, this isn't working for you, it's not been working for you for a while, you need to go and do something else, either with another company or in a completely different industry. And you know, I have complete confidence that they would be thanking me for that eventually. Um, yeah. And you know, on top of that, we we had some we had some trainees that we sort of recently hired that it was it was untenable for. So we we made those adjustments, um, and but fairly quickly then pivoted to. Well, it's difficult. It's difficult to talk about COVID, isn't it? Because it's such a um, it's a weird recession in that. It's, there's such a human cost to it as well. You know, it's not just a recession where loads of people no. lose a lot of money. It's one where, where sort of a lot of lives and, and families have been broken at the same time. So, you know, got to be sensitive to that. But at the same time, it does represent an opportunity from business perspective. So it's like, right, how can we, how can we capitalize on this opportunity? We know from our experience in the financial crisis that it will be bad it would probably be bad for longer than we necessarily want it to be. Um, but there will be a rebound and when the rebound comes, it'll be, it'll be huge. And we need to make sure that we're in a good position to surf that particular wave. Um, and so we had a focus on productivity last year. So let's make sure the people that we do have are just doing really well. Um, let's not worry about growth and let's not even worry about replacement hiring. Let's just get everyone as productive as possible. Um, hence why we still ended up having a, a, a really good year last year. Um, we 
made a couple of we pivoted our entire London office to do the um, to, to move away from the UK market and to do the European market. Yeah. We did for various reasons, not just COVID, but that ended up working really well. Um, we got lucky with our sectors, you know, financial services, life sciences, technology, all three sectors done pretty well post pandemic. You know, everything was washed out in Q2, but otherwise they kind of rebounded pretty quickly. So that was just that was just lucky. Um, and we put together a plan to say, right, we're we're just going to focus on productivity in, in 2020, but we're also going to make sure we're in as good a shape as we can be for 2021 and beyond. You know, we've got a specific vision to take the business to 500 odd people total by 2025. That's going to require a lot of hiring. And really at the point in time that we were when the pandemic kicked off, we wouldn't have been able to, we wouldn't have been able to, um, hire that number of people and actually have the business can continue to be as successful as we were expecting it to be. So last year was spent further professionalizing the business, just making sure that we're building this sort of factory line where you kind of pour entry level hires into it on the one end. And then this yeah. factory line converts those people into highly successful recruiters, highly successful managers, and ultimately highly successful business people. Um, and yeah, we've just been focusing on that over the last year or so. A final interruption to today's episode to introduce Vincere. Vincere is the all-in-one CRM ATS platform built for the recruitment and staffing industry. Now, I first heard about these guys about a year ago. The amount of prospect recruitment agencies and clients I was working with that were telling me they were moving over to Vincere, I had to look into it. And what I found was a business that had a global reach um, with multiple offices around the world. So they've got this follow the sun methodology, which allows them to support recruitment businesses wherever you are and, have, and, and be in your time zone. But the technology that they've invested in um, is becoming a, a disruptor in the space. More and more recruitment businesses are doing this to give their, their recruiters a competitive advantage. They broke into the G2 crowd's momentum grid as a market leader based on their reviews from their customers. So the, the agencies that are using this platform are raving about it. Now, if you're a rag listener and you're thinking about changing CRM or you're a new business looking to launch with a new CRM, then I would get in touch with, the, with these guys because if you mention that you're a rag listener, they're doing an amazing deal. By visiting www.vincere.io forward slash rag, you can get an exclusive deal which offers two months completely free on a two-year commitment or three months completely free on a three-year commitment. This applies to all licenses that you've either signed up for now or that you'll add in the duration of the contract. So get on there and have a look. Finally, if you're listening to your recruiter and you're thinking, I want to move into a more of a business development role um, and I'd like to keep hold of my recruitment knowledge. Well, these guys are recruiting for a BD person, well, multiple roles in both Sydney and London right now. So if you've got a strong recruitment background, you want to move into BD and you want to work for a fast moving tech business that's helping people like you right now, then get in touch via their website because they're hiring today. Back to the show. And in terms of the whole working remotely situation, how have you guys come back? I imagine you're all in the office going into COVID. I think you told me you were. Yeah, yeah, we're 100. We're 100 in office going in. Um, where we are now is we're hybrid. So most sales most sales teams are working four days a week in the office, sometimes three days a week in the office, and the ops fun ops functions are um, more remote than that. Um, I don't think we'll ever be, I, I, we, we don't have any intention to be kind of more remote, if that makes sense. I think we'll kind of slowly, 
start moving back to the old ways eventually okay. still 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 hybrid still hybrid because that's obviously what what people work at want and i think it it does work um but we won't ever be evolving into a, a fully remote business or anything like that no it's it's I think it's important to have a have an opinion on it of how you see it, and then you can build your business around that. You know, it's about there's loads of everyone else has got their own take on it. That's cool, but it's once you listen to all of this, you know, every week I ask that question to people, and you know, I think the the smaller brands and the people that I've asked have asked me for advice, they just don't know where they're going with it. They're test, they're just constantly mm-hmm. testing it. You kind of got to go. Well, you know, this is how we're going to. We went the other way. We went 100% remote with. We have got a we we work passes where we meet weekly, pretty much as teams yeah. in different locations, and it it works for us. Um, we've got no intention of going back, so we, we mm-hmm. you know it's complete opposite of you, but that's how we want to do it. And as long as you know what you want, you can build your business around that. You'll be okay, I think. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, look, so we we we've already done the hour. I could carry on talking forever. What? Where did the investor side of your strategy come in? Where? How? Why didn't you? Why didn't you just stick to this? Because it sounds like it's been pretty bloody busy and successful. Why did you start looking at getting even busier? <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're maybe slightly unusual in that I've got no intention to sort of sell the business, get private equity in, anything like that. Like I just want to, you know, I thrive on the the day-to-day cut and thrust, the challenge, the stress of it. Um, so not interested in in kind of, getting rid so i don't have to worry about that i don't have to worry about a private equity firm being like oh why have you got done all these side things and not just focused on abc um and but at the same time want to kind of build something remarkable scalable um innovative you know we're very very passionate about the sort of quality of service that we provide part of that actually has an entrepreneurial element as in right if we see a, a service line that we can offer that we that we don't currently offer and can't offer that is maybe best suited under a brand, then you will now have the attitude of let's go and uh, and set it up. And I think if you have these different businesses operating on one umbrella and, and these synergy businesses, they work as independent businesses in their own right with their own management teams, um, but they sit within that wider umbrella. They've got shared support from our sort of excellent operational function. Um, and they've got also synergies from the sales side where they're able to sort of do deals with each other, leverage each other's clients and and, you know, arguably grow at a much quicker rate than they would do if they didn't have that kind of support from the rest of the firm. So I think, in all honesty, I believe in diversification. I think, you know, there's lots of businesses out there that have, you know, very big and impressive businesses like organizations like you know, Amazon, um, firms like Allegis, for example, that do numbers of different things within the talent space hmm. um, and are, are much stronger for it. Um, but yeah, it's challenging because it's really busy, spread pretty thin, as you can imagine. And, you know, it creates a massive operational and manage- management burden running at these different targets all at the same time. But, you know, for the time being, at least, we're, we're doing a pretty good job of it. So you you literally, you know, you you should have, I imagine, you said you don't live a lavish lifestyle. You could probably quit tomorrow with the and, and you'd have enough money to live a lifestyle you want for the long term. You're not looking for PE exit scale uh, sale mode. What is driving you? Like why? Why? Like why are you doing this? Um. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I'm not entirely. I'm not. I've thought about that a few times before. I think so. I, I, I love it still. Yeah. Like I, I, you know, when 
when something comes in and something's gone wrong, I love fixing it, you know, and that just gets more and more complex as the business gets business gets bigger. Um, I know if I sold the business and retired, I'll just be, you know, I'm 38. I just, I just be so bored. Like, what am I going to do? I'm just going to, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up another recruitment company. It's like, well, why, why bother then? Um, uh, and, but, you know, I've always been an aspirational sort of goal focused person. I've always had a, um, a, a hankering to sort of try and get on the rich list, um, which is a long way away for me still. Um, yeah, I've always wanted to be in a situation where I can actually start to shape the world around me through the success I've got as far as, you know, giving money away and sort of taking care of certain social issues and stuff like that. You know, that definitely drives me more and more as the business gets more successful. But really what it comes down to is I just absolutely love it. You know, I love the challenge of it. I love the ups and downs. I, you know, we've got a great team. We have, we have a lot of fun along the way. So why why change that? What, what does an average week look like for you? What different things would you get in in one week at, the, at your role now? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say 80% of my time is, 80% of my time is still looking after the core recruitment business, which is which probably right now makes up something like 80% of the revenue as well. So that kind of works. And for the, for the synergy businesses on one side, my role is more as, um, uh, uh, Kind of like an advisor slash mentor slash chairperson i've got you know they're they're great chief exec who run it um uh a colleague who's chief commercial officer he pretty much um uh, it has taken one of them entirely um he kind of basically owns that that's his baby the management consulting firm over in the over in the us um but for those guys it's more right what's the product going to be what's our vision what's the governance going to be as far as how we make sure we don't fall over between now and then making sure that they've got their culture battened down as well like yeah a very different culture for from jcw you know your average management consultant for example if you get them hitting the gong every time they write up a bit of business you know they're not going to be lasting very long in that prison but they do need to have like a clear defined culture so we're not just like every other firm on the street yeah, yeah. um but yeah a lot of the a lot of i've got a really good team around me really capable people. If I got knocked over by a bus tomorrow, the business would keep living and breathing, growing, and I'll come back to a better business. I've got a couple of people in the organization that could could do my job, and you know, I'm convinced with time could do it better than me as well. Um, so, but I mean, a lot of my time at the moment, strategy is a lot of it, which used to be a dirty word for me, but it's, you do have to think about right, where are we going and why and how are we get in there. Culture. Make sure the cultures are strong across the organizations, like I've said. Um, and yeah, fixing problems. As the business gets more complex, the type of problems you get coming your way tend to be something's gone wrong, someone's tried to fix it, they've made it even worse, and then it gets to you. But again, I thrive on that, you know, keeps it interesting. Wow. So, is I guess you've kind of answered the vision question, right? Where do where, where are you heading? You said you want to be potentially on the rich list. You want to be investing in supporting, you know, actual personal ventures and societal issues, etc. Um, you're 38 years old, right? So you're you know incredibly young to be in the position you're in. Um, is is there a vision? Is there a clear vision that you can communicate to us as to what the future looks like? Exactly where you'll be, how big it'll be, or whatever. Do you have something that you? Is outwardly communicated? 
Uh, yeah, so you know, we want to be 500 people total by end of 2025. And my hope is that's end up being quite a prudent estimation um, and it will overshoot that, but I'll be, I'll be happy if we do it. Um, we will keep adding more businesses to the sort of venture capital style side of the business. And we've got, you know, we've got a few ideas on that, but that won't be until the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we, we've got various, we've got various financial targets attached to it, but that's, that's all just linking back to that, that 500 number. So it's just really being, continue to be more of a diverse organization, continue to grow, be more successful. You know, we've got very clear goals around how good an employer we want to be, how good a, um, a service we want to provide and, and the extent to which we want to actually give back to our communities as well. You know, very specific goals that we report back to the business every month as far as how we're doing. And I'd like to think we'd have hit all of those by that point. Um, but as things stand, it's just doing more than we're doing. <laughs> really you know if i if i think about the organi organizations out there that really inspire me it's companies like allegis you know the which is probably the biggest privately held recruitment company out there i mean they're a thousand years away from us they were like i think we need to another sort of 14 billion dollars worth of revenue or something before we catch yeah. them up but building something of that scale taking people along on that journey you know making the people around me into highly successful very wealthy people in their own right, which we're, which we're now kind of seeing over the last few years. Um, that's what really gets me excited. So yeah, we, we've got the specific goals, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in a couple of years we sort of pivot in a slightly different direction. And I'm sure there's, there's loads of, I've talked a lot about the mistakes that we've made. I'm sure there's going to be loads more mistakes that we'll make yeah. along the way. That'll be a, be a hiccup, but you know, we'll take All it right. as we see last it. Last question, Jamie. Three pieces of advice you'd give to uh, a, a, a budding entrepreneur in, in our market, in the recruitment space. Three clear pieces of advice that they could they could use in the future. Um, first of all, make sure you understand the financials. And what I mean by that is when I went into recruitment, when I went and set up a business, you know, I remember being at Eames, I'm writing up a deal, thinking, well, well this is you know, a 20K deal. I'm going to get like 3K of it. Matt's going to get 17K of it. Yeah, maybe yeah, a few yeah. hundred quid on the office, but otherwise it's all going to him. You know, completely ridiculous. If I look at my example, I didn't I didn't have a better earnings year than my second year at Eames until five years after I set up. Mm. Um, and it's only relatively recently that I've had access to more money than I would have had if I just stayed as a, a lifestyle recruiter for the entire period of time. And I think mm. a lot of people don't don't get that. They pursue a dream, sell loads of money, retire on the beach. But, you know, how many people ever get there? So that's yeah. one thing. Understand that. The second thing is also understand cash, how that works, because, you know, that's takes a while to get your head around it. But it's a thing that can sort of really bite you in the ass if you don't make it. Um, yeah. And and culture. Got to have a clear culture. Doesn't have to be the same as anyone else's. But I think it need, you need to be clear as in what what is acceptable in our culture, what's not, why is that going to work, what's our proposition as to how we're going to keep the best people in, um, which again, is not, it's not rocket science, but it's really important. And just try not to lose sight of it. Jamie, what a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for giving us some Thanks time. You, you obviously could have been doing a million other things. Um, and uh, everyone who's listened, I'm sure, has took so much value and inspiration from this conversation. And um, if anyone did want to reach out to you and ask you any questions directly, are you open for them to yeah, drop, of course. On, drop an yeah, on just drop me a message? 
Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Wicked. Might take you 15 months to do it, but that's all right. Eh? That's what happens yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually okay on messages, so yeah. yeah. yeah I'm, only I'm only joking. Um, look, I, I definitely want to get you back on in the future. I want to I keep an eye on what, what you're doing and, and how this you know vision comes to reality over the next you know, I don't know how long the podcast will be. I imagine we'll still be running something of this, of the rag in, in 2025. So mm-hmm. um, I want to be there at the end saying, look at that, 500 people, he did it, or 600. Um, yeah, here's hoping. That's it. And guys, thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much for giving me your time this season. You know, I have literally, um, I, I've produced, I think it's over 120 episodes since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, we've done, we've interviewed people far and wide all over the world and you know, to see the listenership go up to 22,000 downloads in in, um, in May. I don't know what, what the numbers are for June yet. I'm overwhelmed. I mean, I don't I didn't know. When I started this, it was just a – it was based on what I wanted to listen to, to be honest. I wanted to, in, I wanted to inspire myself and uh, and inspire the person I used to be when, when I started. So um, thank you to every one of you for listening. If you do like – what you hear if you've enjoyed jamie and, and previous guest story please share the, the the episodes put them in group messages whatsapps um because you know recommendations at, at an individual level are how you get more listeners on top of what we're doing from a marketing perspective so i'm going to take a break for the next four weeks there'll be no episodes in july whatsoever um we will be back in august you can count on the count on that and uh we'll be bigger and better and different we're gonna we're gonna reshape what we're doing to bring you uh you know season five of the rag um so you please 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 have a wonderful um rest of the summer that until i see you again hopefully it's coming home we uh we're, we're, we're signing off in the, on the morning after or the day after england beat germany so if you're listening after we got knocked out against ukraine you can laugh at me but i'm hoping i'm hoping it's coming home um i'll be back again in august in the meantime please stay safe and i'll see you soon this podcast is brought to you by hoxo media We are the world's number one inbound marketing agency exclusively focused on helping the recruitment industry. Myself and my business partner started the business in 2017, having been recruiters for seven years before. We felt that the recruitment industry back then needed to change and that marketing was going to play a huge role in the way that new and existing recruitment organizations won business and stood out in such a crowded marketplace. In three years, We've now worked with over 200 organizations around the world. We reach a huge audience with both this podcast and content online. And we have over 55 recruitment agencies right now. We're managing the marketing for. So that involves strategy, content creation, distribution, systems process, and leads generated. Having been recruiters and marketeers, We can not only build your brand, but we're also able to connect it to your sales team and ensure that leads are generated as a result of marketing. There's a clear ROI that leads to sales activity. But we also understand recruitment businesses. That's small businesses, medium-sized businesses, large businesses in all sectors. We understand you, we've done the job, and we can build campaigns that are super relevant to what you need as a business right now. We've also recently launched the Hoxo Academy, which is designed to help recruitment owners, recruiters, and marketeers learn from the work that we do so that you can action some of this stuff in-house on your own. The Academy has been launched in May 2020 and has already had an amazing uh, response from the market and it's only going to grow one way. So if you're interested in either having Hoxo support you build your marketing as as a supplier that acts as part of your team 
or you want to be trained by us on how to do it yourself, then get in touch. Visit www.hoxomedia.com and register your interest on our homepage. We will then get back to you within 24 hours and arrange uh, an introductory call. Thanks again for listening to this show. Every single one of you means so much and we will see you again soon.